Hello and welcome to Working Historians, a podcast series about what historians do with their lives. I am Rob Denning, Associate Dean of Liberal Arts at Southern New Hampshire University's Global Campus. Today I'm talking to Dr. Gregory Robinson, who teaches history for SNHU, but has also taught grade school, researched Native American trickster gods, written a couple of plays, and developed a motorcycle-based system for teaching historiography. Wait, what's that? I can hear you asking across time and space. Join me and let's find out together. What is your name and what do you do? My name is Dr. Gregory Robinson. I work as a uh, adjunct instructor at the uh, Southern New Hampshire University. And can uh, you tell us a little bit about your academic and professional background? Yeah, um, I started out, uh, I, I completed my doctorate of philosophy in the College of uh, Arts and Sciences at uh, in 2011. I was working, um, uh, prior to that, I nearly completed a doctorate in curriculum instruction in a college of education at a local university, but left that program. Uh, my interest in history uh, uh, kind of took over on that. I have a master's of education as special ed and ELA, English language arts, and a bachelor's degree in ELA, and I've taught in three different states as a public school educator, and I'm retired now. <laughs> wow. And uh, we'll come back and talk about your uh, public school experience in a minute. But before we do that, uh, you said you finished up a PhD a few years ago. What was your research topic for your dissertation there? Mine was the trickster god. Yeah, it was the Native American culture trickster trope that uh, appears in early myths, first contact of uh, Europeans and the first peoples, specifically uh, Montagnas and along the eastern seaboard. And what were your general conclusions about that? What was your kind of the, the, the main thrust of your dissertation? Uh, that's a great question. Uh, the modern trickster concept, uh, I traced it to its proto-trickster roots. I, I'm basically saying it appears in, in uh, these recorded stories by uh, missionaries, uh, Jesuits, uh, some of the early Protestant missionaries, as they came over and visited uh, uh, the eastern seaboard and the northern Canadian areas where uh, where they interacted with first peoples. Um, the uh, uh, These myths were owned by the people. They were educational, moral, uh, spiritual purposes, explain natural phenomena, uh, their environments, their histories, their backgrounds, etc. They were uh, oral traditions. Uh, they were part of their cultural lifeways. Um, uh, but unfortunately, these were collected in uh, biased ways. And I'm trying to get to the root of all trickster, specifically the trickster god, the creator, the um, the, uh, the devil figure, the uh, um, great spirit uh, uh, god um, that uh, all, all these cultures seem to have uh, part of their past stories. That's really interesting. And so this may seem totally obvious, but in what ways were those stories misrepresented by those missionaries? Was it because they were trying to filter it through a Christian lens or was it just a translation problem? What, how, did those, uh, how did the problems pop up? Oh, both, um, both reasons. The translation, first off, many did not know that language. It was completely, uh, uh, the few who bothered to learn it, the few Jesuits, for example, who bothered to learn it, uh, also, uh, collected these stories. And, uh, sometimes these were, were, were Bible-centered, um, interpretations of them. For example, uh, uh, the Great Flood was interpreted in a different way. Um, there was, a uh, one story of a, a Native American, uh, an early first people, or, uh, that killed another brother. And they said, I dare you not to, uh, connect this with uh, Cain and Abel, and it's like it, it may not have been that case at all. Uh, as as we find out, you know, for example, a good example is this: in in one of the uh, caves in France, there's a femur bone stuck in the skull of a bear, and in one of the caves in uh, New Mexico. 
Mexico, I believe, there's another femur bone stuck in a cave. And they assume a lot of uh, anthropologists and, and other people in the early 18, early 1900s assume these were connected. They're not necessarily connected. They're not necessarily uh, anything of the sort. They're just what they are. Uh, great stories that are, and they help uh, Native peoples understand and define their environments. Huh, interesting. And so when you're working on your dissertation and you're trying to get at the truth behind the fictionalized or biased accounts that came down, how do, how do you reconstruct the reality versus what has been passed down over time? Well, um, I've, I've looked at other myths that were collected um, in the uh, later periods and looking for connections to those in specifically the trickster guy. Paul Radden had uh, uh, several things about that. Joseph Campbell also connected that. And uh, what we're looking at is that um, we're trying to look at uh, taking it away from um, what the biases might be and uh, go back to uh, what the original accounts are. And then, and then there are some cases where we can get these some of these early collected myths that were not uh, biased um, and, and consider those and try to look for the proto trickster trope or the root of it, I guess, is a, it's, we get into anthropology here and it kind of blurs the lines of history. So, no, it is a tricky thing to pardon the pun. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say this, this does sound like it would be um, kind of more than a history project. This does sound like it is going to incorporate some anthropology, possibly like some sociology. Mythology. Yes, absolutely. Mythology. And that's, that's fascinating. I mean, I, that is really interesting to me when I was in uh, my undergrad course or undergrad program, I took a couple of mythology classes just because I was fascinated by that. And so it's really interesting to kind of hear you talk about the uh, the trickster god and reinterpreting it and all of that. Because I think that was the sense that I always kind of wondered about when I was in those classes is, you know, uh, okay, so we're getting, you know, even if you're looking like the large, the, the well-known collections of myths, like, I don't know, Bullfinch or Edith Hamilton and all of that. How do we know these are actually the stories that people were telling at the time? Because as things get even within the cultures that they came from, there's going to be a modification of stories from person to person, place to place, time to time. So how do we know that these are kind of the definitive versions of it? And so it's interesting that you're looking into that. Yeah, one one answer uh, and a short answer would be who wrote, who collected it? What was their agenda? Yeah. What was their agendas? You know, for example, in the Jesuit relations and allied documents, their agendas were to convert to Christian, you know, to Catholicism. And uh, they were kind of what I call the paratroopers of, uh, of the Catholic Church. They went behind enemy lines and and, uh, and tried to collect these myths, but they, they were also looking for ways to connect with these people via learning the languages, but also learning the culture. So um, in modern myth and oral traditions, we try to find these things that have been passed around, passed for hundreds and hundreds of years by uh, uh, the uh, the great uh, collectors and, and the storytellers of that culture, of that specific tribe maybe. And we try to you know look for a connection between those, and, or at least I did, and, and try to connect those to the uh, the stories that were originally collected. Uh, like I said, it's a, it's, it's, it, it may not be an agenda. It may not be anything, uh, you know, really religious at all, but it's just, it's just what, what, what view did they take when they collected it? And they really understand what the natives were, uh, the native uh, first peoples or the native Amer- uh, American or native Canadians were trying to express. Yeah. The, the instance of that, that I tended to study most often was um, the Norse myths and how most of the yes. stories that we know were collected by Snorri Snurlson, Snurlson, I forget how his last name yep. is. is yep. 
basically, I mean, he was he was Christian and he was trying to collect these stories because he knew the stories were dying out. And so the stories that he presented were the versions that he heard and they were obviously interpreted through his own lenses and everything. And so it's I, I've pointed out to students a few times that, you know, basically everything we know about Norse mythology, except for scattered things like the Elder Eddas and stuff like that, that kind of pops up here and there. But the, the vast majority of the stories that everyone kind of associates with Norse mythology with Thor and all of that comes from this one guy who probably had really good intentions with preserving these things. But again, we don't know how the stories were altered when he was retelling them. Exactly. I was actually, my friend and I were actually bought a book on old Icelandic uh, um, a dictionary to try to see if we can go through the prose edda that you had mentioned, you know, because I wanted to get the, the first uh, contact with the Vikings versus the Skerlings, Skerlings, which were, the, they called them Skerlings, I believe. And they were the first peoples they contacted with, they believe along the Eastern coast, Northeastern coast. So we don't know. I just wanted to know, you know, get back to the root of what what exactly happened in, on first contact and, and what were these uh, cultural shared? You know, unfortunately, it was like with the Europeans versus the uh, Native Americans, it was kind of a, a first contact, uh, East versus West uh, gone awry, you know? <laughs> With the, with, the, with, the, with the biological, you know, uh, diseases that inflicted upon uh, tremendous amounts of uh, Native Americans uh, in, in both North and South Americas. Well, this is really good stuff. And I think we could probably sit here talking all day about. But for now, let's talk a little bit about the, your career as a, uh, as, as a historian or in a history-related field. You said that you taught public school for, uh, that was your primary career. So can you can tell us a little bit about that. How did you get into it? And um you know, what was life like in that position? A great question. Uh, uh, I started in the 80s working at a child and adolescent psychiatric hospital uh, uh, where I where I wanted to, uh, as a mental health technician in the psych nursing, working with kids. I was very interested in, uh, in helping kids, um, especially kids who were traumatized and dealing with so many other things, uh, uh, students identified as special needs, etc. And uh, so that led to me teaching summer school there, led to me, uh, uh, you know, switching majors into education and uh, English uh, language literature arts and uh, and going forward in that area. Um, I became a public school education, uh, educator and a, and a football wrestling and head track coach in an inner city program. And I brought a lot of the myth stories that I loved to those programs, you know, and uh, kids really liked that. So I started connecting with kids in a different way. So in a roundabout way, all three of those things tie in. Oh, that's great. Did you, is it that you just fell into the teaching career or was it something that you had actively wanted to do since, you know, you were young? How did that play out? Uh, I didn't, I, uh, I don't know if I wanted to do it when I was younger. I always, uh, I just had a natural interest or uh, inclination to explain things in a different way to students so they could get it. I, I really like making connections and, and it, it goes today, even with SNHU, I try to uh, uh, explain uh, concepts, ideas, a syllabus, even, you know, uh, certain parts of the syllabus in a way that they'll get it and, and, and how to write more effectively. Did you get your PhD before you were, because it sounded like you got your PhD after you were teaching, right? Yeah, I had that, and I was working on a PhD in curriculum instruction and education, uh, specifically special needs stu uh, students identified as special ed or special needs, and uh, and uh, somehow uh, I left that program and was more uh, was attracted to the uh, uh, history uh, degree. So, um, with the help of some professors, we made the transition, and I found my niche. Oh, wow. Okay, that must have been really interesting doing a teaching career while working on your PhD. I imagine that would be a that's quite an undertaking. 
Yeah, summers were uh, spent um, in the library, <laughs> so, yeah. and I and I and I stopped coaching too. I, yeah, I used to, like I said, I used to be a football wrestling and head track coach in in an inner city program. So I, I you know, uh, I wanted to keep doing that, but something had to give, I guess, after a few years. So, um, so you have recently retired, uh, you said, and so uh, what are you up to now? Uh, what types of projects are you working on, and you know, how are you staying current in the field? Well, um, I'm staying current in the field by. Uh, 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 by reading everything, you know, the HA journals, um, I, I subscribe to those, uh, anything that uh, piques my interest, especially in the areas of uh, uh, work I'm doing. Um, one of the reasons I got into history was a back way. Um, I was very interested in early motorcycles, World War II, World War One motorcycles. I built a, a World War II uh, uh, motorcycle and, and working on making a museum quality. So because of that, I, I wrote an article um, that was accepted in the Journal of International Motorcycle Studies. And they, they asked me to speak last July and I couldn't make it, unfortunately, but it uh, I'm gonna. Ha can I read the exact uh, title of the piece if that's of interest and it'll explain further explain everything I'm kind of connecting to? Yeah, go for it. Okay, it, and, and one of the few times I'll do this: a chronological past, present, and future of historical method and the interpretation of history of motorcycles and the art of historical maintenance, and inquiry into present values and the future through past models. With apologies to Robert M. Persig. Uh, Zen in the art of motorcycle maintenance. If you know that, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I was thinking of motorcycle maintenance as you're in that. That's funny. Exactly. So what I did was I connected um, the different historical schools of thought and uh, charted these ideas with the uh, iconic imagery and the faces of motorcycle uh, development and engineering changes, uh, specifically American-made bikes, and uh, through throughout history. So we have the orthodox early types of uh, motorcycles to the modern revisionist types to the post-revisionist, which are so. And, and I do it in, in a fun way, and 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 I do uh, tap into Persig a little bit, even though uh, it's a it's a literature piece. <laughs> Is that um, is that available online for people to look at? Or is there is it behind a paywall? Uh, no, um, I was asked to speak at it, uh, and uh, we'll see what happens with them in in the uh, summer here when I contact, when we reconnect on that for the next uh, the next um, conference they're having that I'll, I should be able to attend. Okay. <laughs> that, that, that sounds really cool. Well, let me know if it, if it does become available to read on or view online or whatever. Let me know. And I, I'd, I'd love to take a look at that. That sounds really cool. Oh, yeah. Well, it's, it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun to read, if you, especially if you're, as a historian, you understand that there are different schools of thought mm -hmm. or schools of fault, as I call it, you know, depending on what we're talking about. And, uh, and, uh, and that's what I did is I tied it in with motorcycles of all things. <laughs> no, I, I approve. That's um, one of the classes that I end up teaching a lot is the, uh, at the grad, in the grad program, we have the, you know, the history 501, the historiography course. Yes. And yes. So I'm always yes. looking for ways to kind of introduce the concept of historiography because a lot of students go into that thinking that, oh, you know, this is just going to be the undergrad program, just continue it, a uh, continuation of the undergrad program. But no, no, no we're going to talk. About no, it. no, this is all. Uh, that's an eye-opening program, I would imagine, to them. You know, to me, it was. Uh, it can uh, be. Uh, yeah. Um, one of the things that I sidebar about this is, like, for example, the movie Easy Rider, uh, I, barring the drug-related uh, storyline, the issue was uh, the motorcycle itself was what I call a revisionist motorcycle because it was different from what was the traditional, uh, you know, built motorcycles and it was changed. And so I, I connected that with the, the revisionist historians in that, oddly enough, in that time period, in the 60s, when we started seeing more views on that were less orthodox in for example world war ii the cold war the atomic diplomacy you know etc etc so those those kind of a uh, you can see where i'm going with this whole thing and i trace it all the way back to uh uh jackson turner and you know etc so yeah that sounds awesome yeah if it ever does become available let me uh let me know and i'd be i'd, I'd love to take a look at it. it sounds really cool oh thank you for asking <laughs> 
So, so in addition to your uh, your your work, your historiographical view of motorcycles, um, what else are you up to these days? Are you still working on the the Trickster project? Uh, well, uh, I, uh, yes, yes, I am. Um, I'm working on uh, um, going further with that uh, because, in my mind, I try to question um, the imagery or the uh, the, uh, the the types of uh, uh, definitions or classifications that uh, first peoples are put through, for example. And in my case, I'm working on a book called uh, uh, Cowboys and Indians. In the abstract, I'm basically saying there are numerous erroneous iconic imageries of Western cowboys and incorrectly named uh, na Indians. And uh, based on these impressions, they're part of our collective modern national heritage of misunderstandings. So I'm working on that right now with a, with a college professor friend of mine at, uh, at another university. Um, I'm also I was just recently had two plays published and they're going to be presented and performed at a local a repertoire theater um, next month, I think in April, I think, or March. So I really, I, I don't come across playwrights very often in this uh, podcast. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Uh, yeah, sure. What happened was uh, when I was a public school educator in junior high, we started a little television show. We started writing vignettes. I started doing uh, random film festivals. I started writing well, the plays that the kids for junior high kids were so sophomoric that were available to in my mind. And these kids were kind of astute. So we started, um, right. I started writing plays for them, uh, little vignettes, short pieces, comedic, dramatic, etc., uh, based on some classic literature. Maybe, you know, even when it went so far as to do it with the, the, the local band and, and then we also did Shakespeare in the courtyard in the local uh, uh, in, in the backyard we, we did a courtyard where we did the best pieces from all you know all the, uh, from Shakespeare's plays and it, it introduced students to that um, it's kind of it kind of took Albert Cullum I don't know if you ever heard of this uh, teacher out of New York who wrote uh, uh, there's a flower in the window that just died and you just ignored it and kept on teaching I think is a loosely uh, rendition of the title here <laughs> and uh, if you've ever heard anything about this guy he was one of my, one of the fascinating teachers and uh, kind of a in a roundabout way, one of my idols. And uh, so I started doing all those things. And what happened was I took what I had written and retired. And I said, you know, I have all these plays. Let's see if somebody would really want to professionally produce it. Not, not you know, uh, junior high amateur. Um, the kids were far more sophisticated. And uh, and so they, they, uh, they, they responded to the different types of plays that were more high school, college oriented. So that's how I got into it in a roundabout way. Uh, very fortunate to, to have a, a couple principals who liked what I was doing and open to uh, that type of uh, expression for junior high kids and high school kids. So, mm -hmm. And so these two plays that are about to be uh, staged, what are, what, what's the storyline on those? Uh, it's one's called Rant at Age 14 for Boys and one's Rant at Age 14 for Girls. And uh, essentially it's uh, about uh, getting along with parents, etc. But they're uh, one act plays, very short, and uh, they're kind of a rolling play. One person comes out and says a line, another one, and another one, and another one. It's a unique way to do it. Something something different that I, I, uh, I don't know if I invented it, but I've never really seen it. So I thought, let's try it this way. you know. And uh, uh, so I was very fortunate to have that happen. Uh, recently, they just accepted it, as a matter of fact, last week. So yay. <laughs> That's very, <laughs> congratulations. That's very cool. Thank you. <laughs> well, I'm interested in writing and in and, and just other areas also. You know, history is my forte and my interest uh, um, uh, because I, I have more questions than answers, you know, and that's why I keep delving into this uh, kind of stuff. So, yeah. So the the project that you were talking about with the uh, the Cowboys and Indians, so to speak, that sounds really interesting. And it does fit with uh, kind of the direction of Western history over the last couple of decades is kind of trying to reanalyze the myths, going back to your idea, your, your interest in mythology, but the myths of the American West, even beyond, is you know, the cultural myths of particular Native American people or something, but kind of the American cultural myth about the, um, 
the frontier and uh, cowboys and Indians and all that. That sounds like it's really it should be a really interesting reexamination of that um, uh, that myth. Well, hopefully so. I mean, there, there's thousands, if not perhaps millions, of uh, incorrect uh, characterizations, and especially with the cowboy imagery. You know, our national heritage, our character remains this you know American cowboy image throughout the world, and and uh, and in this these these kind of their 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 false imageries, the, the these modern media driven cultural icons and ideas are different from uh, what where, where the cowboys originated from the eastern seaboard origins um you know this they, in my work i'm hoping to address um that these uh, media venues developed these things and concocted maybe if not perhaps uh, the symbols visible today and, and understand how these erroneous images unfolded and became part of our cultural uh, heritage, our, our life way, you know, I mean, even though it's not necessarily, you know, we're not trailblazing, bronco busting, six shooter, tobacco chewing, horse riding cowboys. We are, we're all different types of people with different views and different agendas and different uh, uh, belief systems. And uh, we're beyond a melting pot. So I just think we kind of pigeonhole things, ideas into that. So I don't know. And so if you're reevaluating those myths, how are you, how are you going to accomplish that? Are you doing literary analysis? Are you introducing some new sources, source material that hasn't really been used before? Are you using old materials in new ways? What's, what's your process for, for, for finishing this project? Well, all of the above to start off the modern, um, concocted, I guess, erroneous images, um, these, these misrepresentations of present day. I want to go back to the, uh, earliest and first cited sources of what would be like a cowboy or what, you know, like we can go to Columbus, you know, uh, 1491 pre Columbus and then 1492 and see where these things for the, 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 the first peoples or Native Americans were uh, there, there again. America is erroneous also, you know, um, in, in terms of that. So, uh, we, I want to, I want to just identify the earliest sources I can find, the roots of all those things. Uh, one of the things I use, I've used over the years is the OED, the Oxford English Dictionary. Um, I don't if you've uh, you know the ten volume set I have uh, from thirty seven and boy does it tell you where these things first started in literature where this word showed up you know and uh, or this or that so you know go back to the beginning find those sources and then uh, uh, and try to uh, draw from that and trace it to where it was changed and and you'll have to follow media typically newspapers you know those uh, those books written in the, in the fifties you know and the TV shows etc uh, you know John Wayne you know and, and all the other uh, famous actors who portrayed uh, cowboys and Indians and and uh, just trying to trace through and sort out what is really the case and what isn't. Yeah, it's interesting that you're going to be using the um, the OED. It's uh, that is a f- fascinating source. I haven't used it as much as I would like, but it is fascinating because it it is so much more than just a dictionary. We tend to think that you know why would you go look at a dictionary for historical research? But that is an amazing document because, like you said, it's it's a ten volume thing. Even back in the 30s, it's much. I think it's much larger now if you can even find a print copy of it anymore, but, but it provides so much information about, about past stuff. And so it's a great way to put things into context, how we classify and name things can be hugely important in our study of the past. And so understanding where those names came from can be hugely uh, relevant to a, who a, um, to a project. And so it's great to hear that you're using that uh, as a, as a source. I think that's really cool. 
Absolutely, and I agree, and thank you. I agree uh, um, with that. I think it, I'm reminded of Tolkien, J.R.R. Tolkien, Jonathan Ronald Raoul Tolkien, who uh, was a, a philologist. You know, he spoke 17 languages or 16, and then wrote numerous ones in his uh, his epics. You know, um, Lord of the Rings. But uh, um, there, it started in 1857. Uh, the Philological Society in London they wanted a new English dictionary that was going to uh, trace the root of that word where it showed up in literature, and uh, that's that's what I find. Like you, like yourself, find that just fascinating. You know, this is so. so and some guy actually found it. Uh, if you've ever read the, the it, there's a book called Diary of a Madman, I believe, um, is the title, and it involves um, the guy who was uh, in in a sanitarium in London, who's the one who collected a majority of these things, and they invited him to to their uh, open, you know, uh, opening of the book, and they couldn't. They had to get him out of jail, I guess, basically, because he he was he was he was he, he was insane. You know, uh, he killed someone for no rhyme or reason and went to jail and. Uh, and and, uh, and uh, you know, the, it's, it's a, I, I haven't read it in years, but that's the gist of it. Uh, don't quote me on any of that, but uh, you understand that uh, um, these he collected all these stories. He went through volumes of literature and tried to find the root of this word or that word and sent it to him. And they didn't know who he was until after it was published. <laughs> yeah, it, well, I mean, it, it, I'm sure it does take a very special mindset to have that kind of dedication and devotion to finding such obscure things that probably not many other people around the world were all that interested in. So I, well, okay. he had the time, I mean, apparently. <laughs> so he was in jail. So. He had the time, yeah. I, I, I'm not trying to uh, minimize what he did to that you know, poor guy he killed, but it, you know, he did he did serve his time, and while he was there, he did something to uh, advance uh, our understanding of our, our human past, I guess. So you've got the a couple of plays uh, being staged. You've got that book in the works. Anything else going on in, uh, in your – Anything else you're working on right now? Uh, well, I'm, we're revisiting. Um, I was a, I was a uh, editor, a publisher, and a co-writer of a, a company called Westron Press, which is uh, you know from Tolkien, uh, the Common Speech Press. And I have an interest in. We had a, my friend and I had an interest to publish Midwest prose poetry, so we started collecting these things. We we published eleven chapbooks with uh, ISN BNF numbers, and uh, it was a nonprofit publishing company with a mission to uh, to publish um, uh, poets that might not be known in New York. They were only no you know that they, they were known in the Midwest, or or even not known, but their work was solid enough and 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 uh, exemplary in many cases. And we published several of those things. Two things we did was a uh, uh, one called Rain's Trace, the real Fort Megs, and the and a, a kind of a poetry view history of uh, of that uh, that battle. And then the other one was Lost Poems of Henry David Thoreau by a. a, a, a college professor at a Firelands College named Larry Smith. So um, this friend of mine, John Roth, and I are revisiting all those books and uh, doing them, uh, putting them out there on uh, uh, on the internet uh, through several programs. So just thought I'd share that, you know, you know, just uh, it's a little sidebar thing that once in a while we'll work on, you know. Oh, very cool. Okay, great. Well, it sounds like you're, you're keeping busy. So that's good to know. <laughs> well, I love to write and I love to read. So it's just the two somehow. Yeah. You know? So, um, yeah. So before we wrap this up, uh, do you have anything that you'd like to recommend to the uh, listeners out there? Yeah. Um, well, uh, can I circle back to one other thing I like to do at SNHU as a professor? Oh, yeah. uh, there's a couple things. Uh, one is in the I, I 
I really think um, what I like to do in, in terms of addressing um, questions or concerns is I, I answer emails right away. I, I get on there, I connect with the, our, our wonderful academic advisors at SNHU and uh, and try to work on any concerns or, or suggestions. I do a line-by-line edit of their work in week four and five to give them, the students, an opportunity to see what I would call, you know, uh, maybe uh, help them uh, to... Uh, positive, you know, lots of positive remarks, lots of positive feedback to offer them ample opportunity to uh, address potential final draft concerns, deficits, increase these uh, strength of their essays. And in doing so, it'll follow them to the next class at SNHU, you know, and, and I've gotten a lot of emails back from people who have taken my courses saying, you were right, this works better. This is how a thesis statement should look like, or this is how a body of a paper should look like. And uh, um, I think that's really important. Another thing I did, and I'm starting to collect these as a sidebar, is I've been collecting these World War II stories and um, I had uh, a couple survivors I called guest responders. I would offer them as a non, you know, non-credit uh, opportunity, students during discussion boards, or to email me some questions, and I would answer them on an, on an announcement near the end of the course. I had a guy who uh, survived a Nazi attack in Poland. He was seven years old. He was uh, going to the bathroom out, uh, you know, he was visiting his grandparents. He's a U.S. citizen. Him and his brother and his mom and dad were visiting their grandparents in the old country. And on September 1st, uh, Stuka flew by, and he zigzagged and made it into the uh, farmhouse and escape, but uh, the occupation unfolded right after that, and he was stuck there until the uh, Russians uh, liberated, quote-unquote, uh, that area, and then it took him a few years to get out of there. So his story is remarkable because he's still alive. And uh, and I had a 92-year-old communication officer who uh, worked in the U.S. Army and later the newly founded uh, US, Ar- uh, U.S. Navy Air Force, excuse me, and, uh, and his stories were fascinating, how he met Eisenhower, and he, you know, he, did, a, he did a lot of great things. Um, it's just a, a a simple communication officer, uh, soldier, not even officer, but and uh, and so these stories were gave us a realistic uh, understanding, and I did that in the World War II in the post, uh, uh, you, you know, U.S. since 1945 course at SNHU, and the response was outstanding. So it started me thinking about collecting um, stories of Vietnam veterans because those stories are starting to, uh, you know, we're, we're losing 3,000 World War II soldiers a day or more, maybe perhaps, and and these these poor Vietnam veterans in the uh, the conflict were uh, their story needs to be told too. So I have an interest in that too. So. And it connects with SNHU because I had many students ask great questions, you know, and, and uh, most of them were answered if they felt comfortable answering them, the, uh, the, 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 the men who uh, chose to be part of this. So that's, that's, that's really cool. And um, as you collect those things, that itself may be worth publication at some point uh, so, that, so that those stories don't get lost. Because, yeah, as you make a good point that that generation is, they, they are starting to decline or, yeah. um, you know. Yeah, time marches on, I guess. So, uh, but you know, and and you're right. That's a great idea. You know, I mean, I mean, I publish historical kind of research-based pieces on my interest and passion for the subjects I, I find fascinating. So why not, you know, hit, hit on that too? You know, and you don't get any money for this. Um, I do it because I want to. I, I teach at SNHU. Uh, yeah, there's a paycheck, but I, I also go out of my way to make sure I really do a line-by-line edit of their work and, and really help the students because it's so important to communicate effectively, you know, and uh, and one of the reasons I'm, I'm always vying for publication is, you know, I'm not I'm not Jonas Salk or Albert uh, Sagan, who but they claim no patents on their, their vaccines. You know, they, they, 
they did it for the you know to advance humanity to to help out you know and uh, and not saying people should make a living at it I suppose but um, they donated it for the benefit of mankind and I think that's really a job of a researcher is if, if there are some questions that aren't answered your job is to try to find an answer to them and then hopefully get it out there in some peer-reviewed publication and have them uh, you know and then the world can decide if it's valuable or not well, I approve of all of that. So, um, you know, keep, keep in touch and uh, let me know what, what's coming out of that. that I, I really like that idea of, of having students submit questions and having people from that generation write responses. That That's a really cool idea. And um, it's one of those things where I wish we could do that across all courses, but it's obviously not going to work in all of them. But um, that's that's really cool. I like that. That's a good idea. So before we uh, wrap up here, uh, did you have anything to recommend for us this week? Oh, in terms of like uh, things to read or, or yeah, um, I would say um, if you're going to, I'd say uh, Howard Zinn has a, has a fat, you know, it's an interesting book with a lot of surprises. Uh, Seamus Heaney, um, his book on uh, Beowulf, the translation is also as, as, uh, as a wannabe philologist myself uh, is, 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 is wild. Um, I know it's a kind of an older publication, but uh, Atomic Diplomacy by uh, Gar Alperovitz and anything by Arthur M. Schlesinger Jr. A uh, Thousand Days, John F. Kennedy, Vi Violence in America in the 60s, Origins of the Cold War, Crisis of Confidence. Those four books, um, you know, you know, Joseph Santayana said once, you know, history repeats itself. Well, maybe not essentially the same way exactly the same way but there's some things going on that that are just i find uh available you know in in, in these older books so you know just something to think about uh watch the viking show it's fun <laughs> it's not historically accurate but it's a it's fascinating and reread the lord of the rings of the silmarillion if you're looking for something uh, you read everything you can you know and write about it you know my opinion so I actually wanted to, um, before we go, I wanted to recommend the, another podcast. It's called the new books network, which is a, it's a, it's a podcast network that has multiple channels. Um, there's like an American history channel, a European history channel, environmental history channel. There's dozens of different channels, but what the new book network is, uh, is where inter where, where authors of new history books are interviewed. And the purpose of the interview is to talk about the book little bit of discussion of the of the author maybe a very brief little introduction to who the author is but the bulk of the of the interview is is on the book itself and so it gives the author a chance to kind of discuss the book in more of an informal context um where the you know the interviewer will kind of maybe egg them on by talking about you know let's talk about the thesis of it let's talk about the organization of it but then the bulk of it is basically just the author kind of summarizing the story and talking about the book um and it's a really good way to kind of get introduced quickly because it's a podcast episode and each episode is you know half hour to an hour long it's a very good way to kind of quickly get introduced to the new works that are being published because as we all know, there are so many books being published all the time, it's kind of hard to keep up. But this is kind of a good way to try to keep up because you're getting short little introductions to the book from the author. And then maybe you'll go out and read the, read the full thing. So the New Books Network, is a, uh, it's been around for a few years, but it's got a whole lot of episodes out there. So I encourage everybody to go check that out and see what books jump out at them. So, yeah. So uh, thank you for uh, joining me today, Greg. All right. You have a great day, you know. Um, go Browns. You know, I'm sure you're probably a Bengals <laughs> fan, but you know, it's down in that southern part, you know. Um, go. Uh, uh. My, since I was Ohio State, I kind of, it's it's basically the Buckeyes. That's the one that I'm contractually obligated to follow. <laughs> so the rest of it is just kind of playing in the background, but the, the Buckeyes are the ones that I have. To oh, boy. Yeah. 
they'll take away my degree if I don't. And thank you all for joining us today. This episode appears on the Working Historians podcast feed, and you can subscribe to that feed on any podcast app, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Lyceum, SoundCloud, or whatever else you prefer. That way you won't miss any episode, and you'll continue to hear about all the other cool stuff that historians do with their lives. If you have any questions or comments for this or any of our other podcasts, send us a message to workinghistorians at gmail.com or through our Twitter feed at WorkHistorians. For Gregory Robinson, I'm Rob Denning. Have a great weekend.